Welcome to the Respect Food Rolls podcast, a limited run series in which I detail my take on some of the big issues on food, eating, health, and weight that are floating around today, both in the blogosphere and more importantly, in the YouTubeosphere. I try to take a common sense approach that's grounded in solid research and based a lot on my own observations. I hope you'll come back every week during the run of this show, which at this point is projected to be about 12 episodes, but we'll see how long-winded I get. In the meantime, take a listen. For this first podcast episode, I want to simply explain to you what I mean by the title, both of this podcast and of the website as a whole. Respect food roles. What on earth does that mean? I'm going to take the words respect and the word roles and break them down for you. So first of all, let me talk about respect. And as you're going to see, I use this word to mean pay proper attention to. And as I was thinking about this idea, something popped into my head that I thought was a good example of the way food used to be respected. When I was a little girl, the only place we ever went for vacation was to go to Minnesota, the southwestern corner of Minnesota, where my dad's farmer relatives still lived. He had five siblings, four of whom were involved in farming, one of whom worked for the gas company. He'd married a woman who said she was not interested in staying on the farm. So he had left and gone off and gotten this other job. But the other four were all involved in farming. My dad had also been someone who had left the farm as soon as he could. But I remember those visits so vividly. And I especially remember that they were tied pretty directly to food because we always had to go in August since that was when the uh, sweet corn, as opposed to the field corn, the corn on the cob corn was ready to be harvested. August in Minnesota is pretty miserable, of course. That's also the hottest part of the year and the height of the black fly season. I honestly don't remember much about the weather and I don't really remember much about the corn on the cob. I do remember some rather tough beef from cows that were raised on the Bennett farm, my father's sister's farm. And I especially remember the wonderful speckled brown cracked wheat bread that the farm wives baked in their, uh, I don't guess they were wood-fired stoves. I think they had electric stoves by then, but they were baked in coffee cans. And something about those round loaves of bread just intrigued me to no end as a little girl. And the whole purpose of all this incredibly hard work that they were doing on this farm or on these farms was to raise food, of course. I mean, we we kind of lose track of this idea. So one brother, my Uncle Abe, along with his two sons, ran the Berg Dairy. And then there were other other things being raised. Some was just kind of indirectly tied to human 
foods, so the field corn and the alfalfa was used to feed animals. But it was all tied into the production of what we needed to eat, and everybody just took that for granted. And what to me was just fun, going out and scattering grain for the chickens, or going into the barn at my Uncle Alvin's farm to to see how the calves were doing and letting them lick my fingers. That is such a vivid memory for me. And my Uncle Alvin's explanation to me that, yes, the calves would normally drink the milk from their mothers, but that milk was going to be sold. And so therefore the calves were fed something else, some kind of skim milk mixture. It all seemed very odd and very exotic to me. And now I look back on it and I think those people were directly involved with producing the food that showed up on their tables, something that's very unusual today. Very, very few people, just a small percentage of Americans are actually involved in farming. And I especially got to thinking about these farmer relatives this past winter when all of us were in COVID lockdown and wondering what on earth was going to happen with this. It's still not completely sure as I record this in July of 2021, but it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But as I was going through last winter, I suddenly thought, wait a minute, I should go back and reread The Long Winter by Laura Ingalls Wilder who, of course, wrote all of the Little House books, Little House in the Big Woods, Little House on the Prairie, and The Long Winter is part of that series, and it takes us through this horrible winter that they suffered through in Desmet, South Dakota, when the blizzards were absolutely unrelenting. And I read that, how they kept themselves warm by twisting hay and burning it in their wood-burning stove, and how their main source of food was very coarse bread made by grinding up grain, wheat, in a coffee grinder, and then Ma, the ever-resourceful Ma, would bake it into bread. And that's basically what they lived on for that whole long time. And so I went back and I started rereading the whole series. And I got to the point in it where it talked about how Ma put on lunch or dinner for the workers who came to the farm to help harvest the hay. And then later on in Laura's memoir of the first four years of her marriage to Almanza Wilder, appropriately enough called the first four years, she makes dinner for the crew also. And Ma's dinner is perfect even though it's very, very simple. It's just beans and cornbread and fried salt pork. I'm not even sure that she made dessert. Laura makes something a little more elaborate, and her attempt to make rhubarb pie for the crew kind of backfires because she forgets to put sugar in the pie. If you know anything about rhubarb, you know that was a pretty sour pie. And there's this lovely little scene where the workers, the crew, have come in and Laura has proudly served them her pie, and then she realizes that they're all very, very quiet, and they have these strange expressions on their faces. And finally, one of the men very tactfully says, well, this is great. And he lifts up the top crust of the pie, and he reaches over, 
and gets a spoonful of sugar from the sugar bowl and he sprinkles it over the inside of the pie and he says, this is wonderful. Everyone gets to add as much or as little sugar as he wants for his pie. You've done a good job. Each to his own taste. Laura, of course, is terribly embarrassed, but the tactful farm worker at least partially saves the day. So I was thinking about that scene, and all of a sudden I was reminded of my first cousin Joyce, now Joyce Ritchie, who is the daughter of my father's sister Martha, and how she had told a story once about how she and her younger sister Ruth had had to feed the the threshing crew, or as my father always said it, the thrashing crew, one day during harvest season because their mom had to be gone for the day and how it had been kind of a, a, a nervous conniption sort of event, but they had managed to do okay. And I thought, wow, there's, there's kind of an unbroken line there between Ma Ingalls, Carolyn Ingalls, and her pot of beans, and her pan of cornbread, and those slices of crispy brown salt pork, or fat back is what we would call it now, and whatever it was that Joyce and Ruth served to their work crew. So I emailed her this past winter, and I said, do you remember anything about this? And she said, oh yes, I certainly do. And she said, I remember that we fed them potatoes dug from the garden, and a cabbage salad, and fried chicken. And I'm sure there were some other things, but those are the three things that I remember. And it was kind of a a stretch for us to be sure that we got all of that food on the table, on time, and at the same time for the crew, because they had to come in and eat, and then after a very short time, head right back out again. In fact, those work crews, because they were working so hard, were fed five meals a day. And this was part of their pay, at least for those who were getting paid wages. But for the most part, the farmers were simply rotating around from farm to farm during harvest season, renting the thrashing machine, and then each household also provided the food. And because they were working so hard in the hot August sun, they had to be taken drinks There's a lovely scene, by the way, in, I think, Little House on the Prairie, where Laura brings barley water out to her father. I'm not sure how you make barley water. But anyway, these men were fed five meals a day. So they would come to the farmhouse first thing in the morning, and they'd be fed a big breakfast. Then a small breakfast or second breakfast would be taken out to the men in the field. So probably biscuits or bread or something. And then the big noon meal would be served back in the farmhouse. And that's, of course, what Joyce and Ruth were responsible for. Then at maybe three or four o'clock in the afternoon, there would be something called FASPA, F-A-S-P-A. And I realized when I was looking that word up and researching this story that FASPA is an idiosyncratic pronunciation of the word Vesper. And if you know anything about Vesper services in traditional churches, that kind of thing, you know that that's a late afternoon, early evening service. So the Fospa meal was a mid-afternoon snack 
brought out to the men at the fields. And then there was supper, probably not a terribly big meal. And then everyone would go home, flop into bed, and come back the next day to do it all over again. And this would go on for weeks with each farm hosting a crew for about a week. So the thought occurred to me that there was no way that you wouldn't respect that food. The women who served it, and there was kind of an unofficial competition, of course, amongst the farm women working just as hard in those hot, unair conditioned wood-fired stove kitchens, working just as hard as the men out in the field to produce the food. They knew what went into producing it, and the men did too. Lunch is the reward for a good morning's work, as someone has said. So keeping those men going as they were doing all of the hard physical labor that involved cutting the wheat or the barley and then feeding it into the threshing machine The thought of a good meal coming up would be one thing that would keep them going. So there they were, paying attention, working hard. By the way, when uh, when Joyce told me what the menu was, those three items, she specifically said potatoes dug from the garden. But I thought, yeah, and the cabbage for that salad, that came from the garden too, I would bet. And the chicken... Well, I don't think Joyce and Ruth had to do any chicken butchering that morning, but you better believe that those chickens had not come from the supermarket. They had come from the hen house. And of course, there were grocery stores, although really the town nearest them was very small. Most of the food that you ate, you raised yourself. And that was just the way things were. And by the way, my cousin Joyce is only about a year older than I am. So we're not talking about a generational difference. We are, however, talking about a pretty major environmental difference. Okay, so five meals a day produced by means of incredible labor, fed to people who were working incredibly hard. Guess what? Nowadays, it is no big deal to eat five meals a day. Many people do this. In fact, as I thought about this, I thought, well, actually, for many people, some people, I won't say most people in America today, it's more that you're constantly eating, but you take small breaks once in a while. Maybe you have five breaks a day, not five meals a day. But the difference between the food that we eat today and the food that was eaten around that farmhouse kitchen table back in the 1960s is not just the quality of food, which was pretty high, but the amount of attention that was paid to it, the respect that was paid to it. You prided yourself, if you were someone who helped produce that food, on putting the very best items that you could possibly make on that table. Nowadays, however, this is kind of a sad commentary from Vivian Howard, who is the host of the PBS series, A Chef's Life, said in one of the episodes where she was talking about church potlucks. She said, these events used to be a chance for the women or the men, for that matter, to show off their cooking abilities by making specialties 
but now everyone just picks something up at Walmart. How depressing. So nowadays there has been a real erosion in the category of respect, the amount of respect that we pay to the food we eat because it is so easy to get a hold of, it is so cheap, it is so omnipresent. And because we don't pay attention to what we're eating, we end up eating far too much of the wrong thing. So that's the first word, respect. Now let's look at the idea of roles. What are the appropriate roles for food to play in our lives? And if you think about it, respect comes into this too. Respect, I said, meant paying attention. You pay attention and you say, okay, I've had breakfast. I enjoyed it. And now that meal is over. I paid proper attention and now I'm getting on with my life. So let me talk about the roles that food should play. None of us probably listening to this podcast, I certainly am not raising my own food. So I'm not going to pay proper respect to my food in that way, but I still need to pay attention to what I'm eating. So as I thought about, well, if you put food in its proper place, then what are those proper places? What are those roles? And I really came up with only two. And my contention is that every time you eat something, it ought to be fulfilling at least one of these two roles. And if it's not, then it's not food that you should be eating in the first place. What are they? First of all, fuel. Food is fuel. That's pretty obvious. If you don't eat, you die. And sadly, for a huge chunk of the world's population, getting enough food to get you through the day, to get you enough calories so that you can survive, is an ongoing, pressing need. And you don't worry too much about its quality. You don't worry too much about anything but getting enough. But for many of us westernized Americans or other people in the Western world, that is not the issue. The issue is taking in too much fuel or taking in the wrong kind of fuel. And I'm going to use this crashingly obvious car analogy. This will probably pop up in some other examples that I give. But if you think about it, You cannot play around with the type of fuel that you put in anything else. You put kerosene in your car and the engine dies. You put diesel in your gasoline engine and you pretty much ruin the engine. Sometimes it can be salvaged, but the type of fuel is very important. However, in an inimitable phrase from my pastor, we can go for a while on Doritos and Dr. Pepper, but eventually we pay the price. And you can only put so much fuel in a car. You can't put 11 gallons in a 10-gallon tank. I use that example because my adorable little Honda Fit has a 10-gallon tank. I can't put 11 gallons in it. I can carry around a bunch of gas cans, I suppose, but I can't fill the tank any more than its capacity. 
but the human stomach is not like that, as we know. And then the other role that food should play is that of, to keep the uh, initial F going, fellowship. That food can foster fellowship. It, It can be a magnet. It can be a glue. It can draw people in. Food and fellowship, fuel and fellowship. And if if what you're eating fulfills neither of those roles, it's great if it can fulfill both, but at least it should fulfill one, then you shouldn't be eating it. So let's, let's think about an event where both of these roles would be fulfilled. Family dinner or dinner with friends or something like that, where you're eating with a group, you're gathered around a table, you are taking a meal together. The meal is well-prepared and nutritious, so there's the fuel part, but you're talking and enjoying each other's company over the meal. So that's a perfect example of something that fulfills both roles. You might have a meal that you just eat on your own. I often eat my lunch on my own. My husband and I both work from home, but we don't always have the same schedule. So I'm often sitting at the kitchen table and eating my lunch. And I found as I look at what I do there that I I often don't really pay very much attention to what I'm eating because I'm often watching a cooking video or reading about food on a cooking website. And I'm not reading about or watching the same type of food as I'm eating. So I've kind of decided I should quit doing that. I want to read you a snippet from a lovely book that came out a number of years ago and I don't think ever made much of a splash. It's called Cooking for Mr. Latte. It's by a woman named Amanda Hesser who now runs the monster cooking and food blog, Food 52. But back at the time that she wrote this book, she was a staff writer on, I believe, the New York Times. And she reviewed restaurants and all that kind of thing. She was very much a foodie. And she has this lovely little passage where she talks about making dinner for herself on one of the few remaining evenings she has before she and Mr. Latte get married. Here's the passage. I dropped a nugget of butter into a saute pan the size of a saucer, whisked a few eggs with a little creme fraiche, and poured it into the pan. Then I began stirring it over low heat, stirring in circles and zigzags and figure eights. The eggs warmed and turned a lemon yellow at the edges. The eggs, with patience, formed into fluffy curds. I put a slice of bread in the oven to toast, and when the eggs were ready, piled them on top of it. I sprinkled on the truffle oil and then let it sit for a minute so the heat from the eggs would moisten the bread. I left the butter lettuce as whole, roughly, leaves and turned them in a bowl with sliced garlic chives and a gentle dressing. I poured myself a glass of pale yellow fino sherry. The glass began to sweat instantly in the summer heat. The toast calmed my nerves. I carefully ate my salad, carving the leaves into manageable pieces. I heard a door shut outside, but otherwise it was silent. And she sits there and she eats this lovely little meal, very, very easy, 
basically scrambled eggs on toast with a side salad if you take out the truffle oil and the sherry, neither of which I would include in that meal. But that vivid little picture of her sitting there and enjoying that meal on its own, savoring every molecule, has stayed with me for a number of years, so much so that I was determined I was going to go back and find the passage in the book and was quite proud of myself that I succeeded. So that would be an example of food that is purely fuel, but is being savored and respected on its own. And then, of course, there are some events that have food served at them and the food is really not serving as fuel. It's not needed. It's not a meal, but it's acting as a, an aid to conviviality. So this would be party food. This would be food served at a wedding reception where it's not a sit-down meal. It's just you walk into the reception room and here are these long tables loaded with all kinds of finger food and treats. And believe me, I have worked on a number of that type of wedding reception and enjoyed it immensely. It's always so much fun to have the doors open and have the people pour in and start gobbling up the wonderful food that you've helped prepare. And uh, wedding receptions, I've also been involved for a number of years with managing the Friday night receptions, post-concert receptions for the community choir to which I belong, the Cherry Creek Chorale. And it's the same type of thing. We want people to stay around after the concert and talk. We want to meet them. We want to meet our audience and connect with them. And so the food fosters that connection. And all you have to do to realize how important that role can be is to imagine a wedding reception or a reception after a graduation or some other ceremony in which no food is served. You just invite people to come and hang around for a while after the ceremony. Very few people would stay. Even though a very typical time for a wedding is like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time you get into the reception itself, it's 3 or 3.30. It's not a meal time, but yet the food draws people in. And believe me, again, I've worked on a number of wedding receptions that took place in the mid-afternoon. And without that food there, people would not stay. But with the food, then they do. And you foster that communal spirit that you want to have because of this gathering that you've gone to a great deal of trouble to put on. So I'm saying all of the food that you eat should fit into one of these two roles. It should be food that you're taking in because you actually need fuel and or it's food that you're taking in because you are being part of a communal event. And so that means that there's a lot of eating that we do that really doesn't fit into those roles at all. And we need to start thinking about how we can cut it out. What would not fit into these two categories? Well, people who know me well know what's coming next because the first category that I'm going to say does not belong in our lives is the dreaded snack. Sometimes I say it like quack, but I won't impose that upon you. Dear podcast listeners, 
A snack is something that you eat mindlessly, that you grab. A handful of candy from that bowl on your coworker's desk. Oh, she's not doing you any favors. Or a handful of salted peanuts from that bowl on the kitchen table. Or whatever, something you just, you take, you have it in your hand probably, and you just mindlessly eat it. And then you forget about it. I'm not talking here about something you eat mindfully as fuel. It's 4.30 in the afternoon, perhaps, and you know you're not eating dinner till 6.30 and you're really hungry. So you have something that you carefully think about and prepare. You have half an apple. You put some peanut butter on the sliced up apple. That would be like a small meal. The snacks that mom's are supposed to supply after their kids' athletic practices are, of course, famous or perhaps infamous. How healthy are you going to make them? How hungry are the kids? How close is it to dinner time? These can all be rather fraught subjects. But in general, I think we recognize that a snack that's just mindless eating is something that ought to be cut out. And Then I would also say that this kind of overlaps a little bit with the snacking, but this is food that is served in the context of an event, but it doesn't actually foster community. It interferes with it. So I think, for instance, of a woman's Bible study I was in charge of a number of years ago, and they always had the tradition that they brought in food. But the problem was that the meeting started at 9.30 and it lasted till 11.30 and we had a very full schedule with all kinds of things going on. Discussions, a video, a workbook, prayer requests, prayer, all kinds of stuff. And yet people felt that we also had to have food. And yet we had just eaten breakfast not all that long ago and right after the meeting was over, It would be almost lunchtime. I tried to discourage this. I never succeeded. So I have this vivid memory, for instance, of one of the women in the class sitting there. She has a plate with, I think, like a blueberry muffin or something. And as we're talking, she's breaking off little bits of the muffin and kind of sneaking it into her mouth as she's trying to participate in the discussion. It was not fostering community. It was interfering with community. The um, wonderful sister duo, Gretchen Rubin and Liz Kraft, who had the podcast Happier, which I will include in the show notes. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast that you should listen to after you listen to this one, of course. And they've coined the phrase, the evil donut bringer. Don't be the evil donut bringer. And perhaps it would be a little kinder to say the well-intentioned donut bringer, the oblivious donut bringer. In other words, it's this it's someone who brings in food that nobody really needs or wants. It's the type of thing that occurs when you walk into the break room at your office or into the faculty lounge if you teach, or wherever it is that you work, and there's a box of donuts. Because it's Tuesday, and Tuesdays are donut day. Or you walk in and there are cupcakes, because Luann 
is having a birthday. And so we have to celebrate her birthday. So somebody went and bought those. And here I'm going to put on my food snob hat. Those horrible artificially colored and flavored cupcakes from the grocery store bakery. Or even worse, again, my food snob hat in full position here. One of those dreadful sheet cakes from the warehouse club or the grocery store. And my word, they're so cheap. You can feed so many people from one of them. But if you took a look at the ingredients list, you'd know why they were so cheap. And people do not eat this stuff because they really like it, because they're savoring every mouthful. They eat it because it's there. That's it. And if somebody took a little bit of thought, they might say, you know what, we could take the same amount of money that we spent on those cupcakes and buy an inexpensive bouquet of flowers and put that on the break room table with a big sign saying, happy birthday, Luann, and that would be much better for all concerned. Now I'm going to stop here and I'm going to tell a fairly detailed story about this kind of thing. I've been reminded of it as I worked on this material, and I think it really makes clear what I'm talking about when I say often the food that we serve at events is counterproductive. So this uh, was an event that took place a number of years ago. We were living in another state, and we were attending a church that hosted big pastors' seminars, pastors and other workers in churches' seminars, I don't know, several times a year at the time. And they would have a certain amount of food provided for them, a certain number of meals, and then they would be responsible for finding their own lodging, and they would also be responsible for some of their own meals. And so I was asked to come in and coordinate one of the lunches, which I was happy to do. So as I recall, I was responsible for picking up some very nice gourmet pre-made sandwiches and then I made salad and I made a big pan of brownies. As you will see, the brownies were completely superfluous. And so I got into the church well in time to get everything set up on the serving table. And as I came into the church kitchen, I noticed that there were these enormous boxes from Costco. And I love Costco, by the way. I wouldn't be without my Costco membership if you threatened to shoot me. But uh, this was Costco food at its worst. Dozens and dozens and dozens of individual bags of chips and trays of their huge bakery muffins. Actually, they're cupcakes, but don't tell anybody. And big bags of candy. And I thought, my goodness, what is all this stuff? So I got my lunch on the table. And of course, one of the things that appeared on that serving table was a huge basket with those individual bags of chips in it. So now we had sandwiches and chips and salad and my homemade brownies. And this was for all of this food was for people who had been sitting all morning. They were attending seminars, seminars, workshop sessions, that kind of thing. There had been no Now everybody get up and walk around the block a few times moments, as far as I know. Okay, so this was a very well-organized event. There was nothing sloppy about it all. Everything had been thought out. But as you'll see, it had been thought out 
kind of down the wrong alley. So everyone finished his or her meal. I think it was mainly men. And then the next session was going to be a full session and it was just going to take place in that same room down in the fellowship hall of the kitchen. And so the people were going to end up sitting at the tables to listen to the speaker who was the senior pastor of the church. So the young man on staff who was in charge of this event had a crew. They swept in, cleared off those tables, threw away all the trash. And then guess what they did? They put huge bowls of candy on each table. I remember there being the biggest bowl of M&Ms I have ever seen in my life on one of those tables. And I remembered that as people had gone through the line and I had been standing there behind the table to make sure everything was going okay, I had heard two of the attendees say, wow, if they keep feeding us like this, we're all going to have to go on a diet when we get back home on Monday. Well, now that became quite a clear comment. And as I thought about this, I thought, now here's someone, we'll say the pastor of a church, and he has made arrangements so that his pulpit is filled for Sunday. Maybe he's the pastor of a small church, so he's gotten somebody else in to preach. And then maybe he's had to fly to this location. Maybe he drove and uh, split the cost of the gas. And then he's had to book a hotel, again, maybe with several other people, and he's paying for some meals. He's gone to a great deal of trouble and expense to come to this seminar. And yet, as he sits there, and he's trying to really listen, really concentrate on what this speaker, the pastor of this church, is saying, about how to have a successful church and what is some of the funny, some of the sad things that have happened to him as pastor. And yet out of the corner of his eye, he can see that huge bowl of M&Ms. It's calling his name. And so the M&Ms or the chips or the Reese's peanut butter cups or whatever else they were serving, that food is simply a distraction it is not serving any proper role at all. And we do this all the time. We think, oh, we always have to serve food. Oh, we're having a class. We have to serve food. Oh, we're having a break between sessions. We have to serve food. Even though an hour and a half later, we're going to be serving a lunch. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's counterproductive. And finally, one last type of eating that we do that does not fall into one of the two proper roles is what we often call comfort food. And by this, I absolutely do not mean hot soup and bread on a cold snowy night when you and your family are gathered around the kitchen table and that hot soup is very comforting. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about that pan of brownies that you make or that batch of chocolate chip cookies that you make because you think, I'll feel better if I have a brownie. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm kind of maybe a little hungry, but what's really going on is that I'm kind of bored. I'm kind of depressed. 
The weather is gray and drizzly, but a brownie, a brownie would make me feel better. And of course, the brownie won't make you feel better. It'll make you feel worse. Comfort food never comforts when it's this type of eating. So with that, I hope I've left you some things to think about. I'm going to close this first episode of the podcast. Come back next week and we'll continue our discussion. Thanks for dropping by.